So there's this whole connection between the diet, how it influences our microbiome, and then how our microbiome interacts with the gut-based immune system and how that message spreads throughout the body. So now it's no longer just IBS that this plays a role in, it's the current modern epidemic of non-infectious diseases. Pretty much all the chronic diseases that have been increased in the last 75 years can be traced to that axis. Hi everyone and welcome to Superwoman Wellness. I'm Dr. Taz. I've made it my mission throughout my career in integrative medicine to support women in restoring their health using a blend of Eastern medical wisdom with modern science. In this show, I will guide you through different practices to find your power type and fully embody the healthiest and most passionate version of you. I'm here for you and I can't wait to get started. This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome back everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Superwoman Wellness where you know I am determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. We are about to embark on a conversation near and dear to my heart, gut health and all the different ways your gut determines your health and impacts so many different processes in the body some of which might actually surprise you. Today, we're gonna to talk about the mind-gut connection. And I have with me Dr. Emran Meyer. He's in, the author of The Mind-Gut Connection and The Gut-Immune Connection. He has studied the brain-body interactions for the last 40 years and is the executive director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience and the founding director of the UCLA Brain-Gut Microbiome Center at the University of California in LA. His research has been supported by the National Institutes of Health for the past 25 years, and he is considered a pioneer and a world leader in the area of brain-gut microbiome research and the interactions and clinical implications. I am so excited about this. Welcome to the show, Dr. Meyer. Well, thanks so much for having me in the show. It's a pleasure talking to you. Definitely. And I think it's just so I get so excited because, you know, I've studied all these different Eastern systems in medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, all of these things. And they have been sort of ringing the bell on the importance of gut health for thousands of years. And it kind of got ignored. And to see all this incredible research coming out over the last decade or so, and how the gut is truly connected to so many different aspects of our health, I think is revolutionary. And you've been in that. And so I'm so excited to bring you on the show today to help us understand it more from a science standpoint, more from a research standpoint, so that everybody can really latch onto this concept. How did you get involved in this field? What made you sort of involved in the field of, of you know, neuroscience and digestive health and the connection between the two? Yeah, so this really goes back to all the way, uh, all the way back to when I had to make a decision to go into medical school. You know, I was really torn between um, psychology, psychiatry, and medicine, but then ultimately decided for medicine. And I was always drawn to this connection between the brain and the mind, the nervous system, and and our body. Um, I'm not sure where that came from. You know, I I don't have any of these complaints um, or, or diseases, but it's it's been definitely the reason I went into medicine and then did my my thesis in that area about brain heart interactions initially, um, and then later when I had clinical experience, I realized that um, patients with gastrointestinal disorders are actually the best example for uh, studying the interactions of you know the mind, stress, emotions. And and gut um, dysfunction, so that's how in in a fast fast forward 
version you know involved in all of that that's fascinating so when you think about your work and it's 40 years worth of work so that's in itself so impressive you know what what is happening to the gut what is happening to the microbiome and how does that really impact our minds and our immune system what what is kind of happening so what's been happening which i really felt in my own career you know when i started um doing studies and promoting this concept of brain-gut interactions, it was really looked down upon both from the scientific community, from my clinical colleagues that said, you know, you can't blame real diseases on uh, psychological factors. You know, it was always, so the brain was always um, um, associated with just psychology, not not with this function that the brain has. Right. And um, <clears throat> so, for, for many, for, for decades, really, this was the situation that I found myself in. And um, then with the ascendancy of the microbiome science, for some reason, that was much more uh, acceptable to the world than just the brain-gut interactions. And then it this became a household name. I mean, like brain-gut interactions and gut health and um, you know, the brain-gut microbiome axis, all these became like very popular, mm-hmm. not just in the lay press where this uh, was picked up um, faster than in the, in the scientific press, uh, but then also by funding agencies like the NIH. Um, and um, yeah, so now there's, there's a lot of research going on in this field by, by people that you know, 10 years ago, wouldn't have thought to go into this. Many young investigators find that very attractive um, because it seems to be like the frontier now in, 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 in neuroscience, you know, how the body interacts with, with the nervous system. Yeah, I would say it's been, and then I think from the patient side, something happened partially through the pandemic that has accelerated this. Um, so, you know, people always had, a lot of people, about at least 10% of the population, had a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So right. we see that people. all the time in practice, right? But, IBS, IBS. Yeah. Yeah, but what has happened is a lot more people that have these symptoms that did not meet these criteria, didn't want to come out. It's not just the kind of thing you want to talk at a dinner party about. Or, right. Um, uh, so now all of a sudden that, you know, the brain-gut axis has become something scientifically endorsed. Everybody talks about it, you know, and so now there's a explosion of reports and interests in gut health. It's really interesting to me to see that it's partially accelerated also, I think, through what happened in the pandemic, that anxiety levels have increased a lot by, by, by people. And clearly anxiety is one of the factors that feeds into this brain-gut uh, system, you know, and makes symptoms worse. So I think a couple of things. One is it's now more acceptable, the terminology. Uh, it's no longer a stigma to have gut problems. Um, and also, I think the symptoms have increased during the last couple of years with the pandemic. And there's probably no, nothing in sight that that will decrease because anxiety is persisting. What's going to be the next phase? And you know, is it going to increase in, in winter again? Do people need booster shots? There's this constant source of anxiety and um, also restrictions of social life. Which oh, is definitely. I mean, I think we've seen that firsthand, right? We've seen how, you know, behind the pandemic is a mental health pandemic that isn't getting talked about as much and the incredible amount of anxiety, even depression that so many people have felt over this last, you know, 18, 19 months now that we've been dealing with this. 
what though, when we, when we link anxiety to gut health, right, that opens up a whole toolbox, potentially a whole tool, toolbox and a whole avenue of research where we might be able to get answers. Let's stick with anxiety for just a minute in your work. You know, what are you seeing happen at the level of the gut when people manifest with anxiety? What's happening down here at a gut level for somebody out there who might be suffering from anxiety and they're like, wait, I thought this was all in my head. And you're like, no, 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 it's in your gut. You know, what would you tell them is happening? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two answers to that. One is um, clearly whatever goes on in our brain, you know, we can see it on our facial expressions. If, if you are, uh, you know, a uh, trained psychologist, you look at somebody and you know that person is anxious, you may, um, and the same you know, output from the brain to your facial muscles and, mm-hmm. and um, they go down to the gut. So, uh, you know, the, it's, it's a, I've always said this, the gut is a mirror, has a mirror image of your emotions that you may or may not be aware of. So a lot of people are not even aware of their anxieties. That's another issue. Um, and so, but if you could look inside and there is some research studies that have seen that, um, you would see that the whole gut ecosystem changes during anxiety. You know, there's different patterns of contractions, secretion of, um, you know, from acid to mucus. Um, there's, there's different blood flow. So your entire gut changes, and you may not feel it. A lot of people, this happens in everybody, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't really feel that. Now, one thing also happens with anxiety, and we've studied this a lot, is that the sensitivity to perception of your body, of your gut goes up. So, um, so now you have all these changes in the gut and the sensitivity goes up. So now you actually feel all this stuff that's going on and you feel it in terms of discomfort, bloating, rumbling, you know, the, the whole range of symptoms that people uh, report. Um, so a big part of that is the, the amplification by the brain of all the signals that come up to the brain from the from the gut that that we experience, and I think you know, and it's so interesting to me because we see this in children for sure, where they have gut issues, which then manifest as sensory issues. You know, they're sensitive to sound, and they're sensitive to taste and texture, and everything's just sort of amplified. I mean, I remember stories in the practice where, you know, a a little boy wouldn't put his socks on and it was a a struggle to get him to put his socks and shirt on to get him into school. And once we fixed his gut, all those behavior patterns went away. Similarly, you know, even with my own daughter, like a lot of IBS symptoms, a lot of bloating, a lot of that happening, but her moods are all over the place, right? She's angry. She's anxious. She's having panic attacks. She's, you know, she's down. And once we sort of leveled off her digestive health and really got her on a program, like she's, herself feels like she's waking up, wake awoken from a deep, deep fog. So we see this all the time in practice, you know, and I think it's important for anybody out there listening to understand how connected these two things are. What is actionable though? Let's say somebody else out there understands. Okay. I get it. You're, you're saying the gut's important. It's important in something like anxiety. It's important in depression. What is actionable? What are the things that they should be doing with their diet? You know, what would you say really influences sort of this gut brain connection when it comes to diet? Maybe we start there to begin with. Yeah. So before I answer, let me, I, I, I can help to just make a quick comment. Yeah. It's great that you mentioned this phenomenon of this multisensory sensitivity. So we have also noticed this, you know, with our brain imaging studies that there's increased activation, not just in the 
visceral sensory area of the brain, but also in the um, in the auditory and the visual. So this multisensory sensitivity persists. You know, it, it you can you pick it up in children, but it's really mm -hmm. persists. It's not just the increased gut sensitivity. It's the the brain amplifies and integrates and deals with sensations from the body um, of all all sensory aspects of the body. So that's a very important point. Um, and then in you know in um, we've seen that some people are more sensitive to to auditory stimuli than they are yeah. to, visceral, to visceral stimuli, you know? So anyway. What's the, before we, before you answer the question <laughs> that I threw out there, what, like, I'm fascinated by this because I see it over and over again. I see it in our own family. What's the answer for that? Because so many people have, like, they're calling it dysphonia or, you know, sensory processing disorder, or like all these different names have sort of evolved for all these different sort of sensory conditions. What, what's the answer in your sort of world for somebody who's suffering from that, whether they're a child or an adult, does it go back to the diet? Does it go back to the gut? Where do you begin on something like that? I think the sensitivity, I would say that mindfulness-based uh, strategies will probably be the, you know, the best that you, um, that you decrease that, that exaggerated amplification that the brain has. I mean, there's a, there's a mechanism that we know now today, um, it's, there's a network in the brain, the salience network that assesses the relevance or the potential threat of any stimulus for the organism. And when that salience system is upregulated, it will perceive all these, these sensory stimuli as potentially threatening. And then it this stimulates the arousal system and that then amplifies, you know, the, the so what mindfulness-based stress reduction or other techniques can do is they target this, um, this salient system, you know, mm -hmm. as does uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, there's now, you know, this used to be a difficult therapy to administer, but there's now a lot of efforts to develop online um, web-based versions of, con of short-term cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think are pretty, that together with mindfulness are probably the two techniques that, that I recommend to my patients, you know, to- For to that. The, the the diet itself is for this particular aspect is probably not that that important. I, I think it's this is more something you have to target at the at the brain level. Got you. Yeah, it's interesting because in practice we've seen some modulation with diet too. Like when we put people on an anti-inflammatory diet and really lower processed foods and additives and sugars and things like that, we seem like we're able to dial it down a little bit. But the mindfulness piece, I think is important too. But going back to our conversation around diet and really connecting diet to, you know, a really healthy brain and healthy sort of overall mood, what are some of the fundamentals there that everybody should be thinking about? So the fundamentals are actually very simple. You know, the science is very challenging <laughs> to understand this complex system of brain gut microbiome interactions. The recommendations, particularly in, in terms of diet, are fairly simple. Um, there's you know, different opinions on this, but I, I feel very strong. I've gone, you know, through 40 years of seeing diets come and go. And mm -hmm. you know, um, so right now we're in this phase of the low FODMAP diet and the yeah. keto diet and the gluten-free yeah. diet. I personally, I'm not a fan of any of these. I think that the default diet for the human brain-gut microbiome uh, interactions is a largely plant-based diet with, um, you know, Ideally, no added sugar um, with as little as possible processed 
I should say ultra processed foods because mm-hmm. you know even the yogurt is a processed food. Right. Um, so it's really the ultra processed foods, um, and with a relatively small amount of 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 meat, protein from meat, um, ideally coming from fish and from poultry. Um, if you start with that diet, it has to have a high variety of fruits and vegetables. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to just eat tomatoes and, and nothing else that will not be beneficial to your gut health. Um, but if you provide a large variety of these, these plant-based foods, it will force your gut microbes to expand their ecosystem. It will add uh, new species to it that have been suppressed or that have on, only operated very low concent- concentrations or abundances. So recommending a diet like this, it will force the system to grow in its diversity and the richness over time. And, and that's really what you want. Now, in people that are more sensitive, certain food items, um, you have to identify, the patient should identify um, the handful or less of items that reproducibly cause symptoms. Um, you know, cruciferous, some cruciferous vegetables, um, broccoli, uh, cauliflower make, uh, you know, cause symptoms or onions or, or garlic in, in, in some sensitive people, they should try this out, you know, to eliminate it for two weeks and then keep a diary and then reintroduce it. If it truly is related to that food compound, I think they should either eliminate it or reduce it in, 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 in quantity. So then they stay on the ultimate diet for the microbiome with all this variety but they eliminate the few things that cause the symptoms. I, I personally think it, it has several advantages. One is it um, it empowers the patient. So you don't tell the patient, eat this diet. This is, right. but you say you're going to create your own diet. And I think that's a very important part as, as you know, dealing with these patients, this empowerment. Um, and, and the second thing is, um, it's, it's it's also much easier to maintain. So the compliance, you know, very few people will stay on the low FODMAP diet. Few people stay on a strict uh, gluten-restricted diet or, or gluten-free diet. Um, and so I would I would say, uh, and and I've been recommending this to all my patients. I would say that ninety percent get benefits from this, and often they realize what they thought are these food sensitivities were or other things. So the the fear of food, for example, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's a big thing that amplifies. So, so if you're afraid, if you eat something that has the smallest amount of gluten in it, if you go to the restaurant with that mindset, your salient system is way upregulated. You go into this and your brain is just waiting for you to ingest something like that to ramp up all the sensitivities and huh. symptoms. So interesting. I, I've seen many patients who who were really worried, you know, when they go to a restaurant that they haven't been to, that they don't know where the bathroom is. So even when they drive to that restaurant, they already get discomfort in, in their belly. So, but then they blame it on the food that they eat there. Mm-hmm. So that they can't eat in restaurants because it's, you know, um, so, this interaction of anxiety and food-related fears with the actual then reaction to the food, I think it's a very important. Um, so anyway. wrapped, yeah, so wrapped up together, it sounds like. So, you know, with plant-based foods, which seems to be universal for every condition, 
the only thing, like we have so many people saying they avoid nightshades, they avoid, you know, different groups of vegetables and things like that. They, a lot of people getting very much into this particular vegetable or herb or spice causes SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Where do you stand on concepts like candida overgrowth? I talk about that sometimes, SIBO, you know, uh, you know, fat malabsorption, all this other stuff. Some of these ideas of what we see in sort of the exam room, the gut going through and how it relates back to diet and food. And then of course, to mental health and mood. Yeah. So I'd probably give you a different answer than many of the people that you interview. Yeah. And, that's, and that's sort of based really because, you know, I've worked at UCLA and done research for, for several decades. So I'm, I'm, I'm a scientific skeptic, you know, right. I, I I, I need to see unequivocal evidence before I really recommend something, um, unless it's something that's been around for thousands of years. So I, I do rely more on um, evidence that comes from, you know, t- traditional Chinese medicine, or Ayurvedic, or uh, ancient Greek medicine, than on some of these modern concepts that people mm-hmm. come up with. Um, so SIBO, I just recently wrote a, a piece on that. Um, you know, it remains highly controversial. If that A causes symptoms, B, the way we measure it, if this really reflects alteration in, in the gut microbes in the small intestine, uh, there's a lot of controversial data on this. And mm-hmm. um, assuming that it does exist, even if we, our breath tests do not capture it accurately, then my recommendation is to use the body's own cleansing system, which are these, something called the migrating motor complex when your gut is empty then your gut motility switches to a pattern where uh, this very powerful contractile wave moves from your esophagus all the way down to the end of the colon Mm -hmm. and moves everything down there, including the microbes. So it puts the microbes back in the distal small intestine and and into the large intestine where they belong to. There's always a small number higher up, you know, and... um, if If you have a true motility disorder, so like scleroderma or... Um, you know, systemic lupus or um, or chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction, and your gut doesn't contract, then you don't have that mechanism. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that actually do develop true SIBO. You know, that can be measured with aspiration of microbes from from the small intestine. Right. Um, but that's a rare group of people. I mean, we studied those early in my career. That's um, a rare group of people. I don't think that what's called SIBO today falls in that category. And I always tell my patients, you know, if you think you have that um, time-restricted eating where you have a 16-hour period of this migrating motor complex doing its job and cleansing everything um, is probably the most effective way of dealing with it. Mm, Interesting. Rather than, I mean, the worst thing I I think is taking antibiotics. In In this day and age, to give... Repeated doses of a broad spectrum antibiotic is, in my opinion, close to malpractice, really, you know, because, um, yes, we know so much about how detrimental it is to decrease the abundance and richness of your microbiome. Right. To do that for a condition that's not even agreed upon by the FDA, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just don't think that's justified, you know, so... That's interesting because, you know, clinically we get these questions all the time and I talk about the microbiome all the time. 
I always feel like SIBO and candida are side effects of something else. That's often what I tell patients, like even if we're able to capture the bacterial overgrowth or you're fitting into it, or you're, you're testing for some of these things, they're often the result of something else, contractility, fat malabsorption, pancreatic, something, you know, there's usually, there's usually one more story, not just that story. So that's interesting that that that's what you're seeing in the research as well. Now we've talked a lot about the mind component about it. What about the immune gut connection? Cause I know that's another one of your books and I don't want to lose time and not at least touch, touch upon that idea. You know, I've been sort of harping for a while now, especially through the pandemic, that so much of our gut is in, I mean, so much of our immune system is right here in our gut. And again, that's very much an Eastern concept too. What does the research say about that? Yeah, it just confirms, you know, what some people had talked about before and without the science that about 70% of our immune system, both the um, innate and the adaptive immune system is located in the gut. And it's it's kind of a, a, a unique design specialty of evolution that they put this immune system, the largest part, you know, microns away from, from, from these microorganisms, because we know the minute an immune cell comes in contact, even with a benign microbe, it will trigger the alarm bells. It's not supposed mm. to be directly. So this thin layer of mucus separates you know, us from these um, sensors on dendritic cells, part of the innate immune system, which then immediately signaled into the gut-based immune system to produce cytokines and and then even worse than that, um, so whatever happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. You know, these, these immune cells are not sedentary um, uh, occupants of their gut niches. They travel to go into the systemic circulation uh, all the way to the lungs and the brain. Um, so these connections to COVID uh, vulnerability and, uh, you know, the, the long-term consequences of, of COVID have been um, in part related to this to, to this unique situation that, that the microbes, I mean, the, the COVID-19 um, virus does not uh, attack the gut. Um, it attacks, the, it, 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 it interacts the lungs, but then the immune reaction in the lungs is influenced by what happens in the gut before mm. between microbes and, and the immune cells. And to sort of generalize this, um, so there's this whole connection between the diet, how it influences our microbiome, and then how our microbiome interacts with the gut-based immune system, and how that message spreads throughout the body. So now it's no longer just IBS that this plays a role in. It's it's virtually all these diseases, as I mentioned in, in, in my book, um, of the, 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 the current modern um, epidemic of non-infectious diseases from mm-hmm. range from cardiovascular disease to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, um, you know, cancer, um, pretty much all the chronic diseases that have been increased in the last 75 years can be traced to that axis, the diet, microbiome, immune. Wow. And so that this is, the, I, I think, the most exciting part of that field that now all of a sudden we almost have this, this universal theory, you know, for our chronic diseases and how we can deal with them by looking at our diet. Um, and well, I think that I want to make sure everybody caught that. That's a really important statement you just made. So almost 75% of the diseases we see today, everything from cancer, diabetes, autoimmune disease, we've already talked about sensory disorders, so many different things that we're seeing today 
are connected to this relationship between the diet, the microbiome, and then how the immune system in turn responds to all of that. And I wonder too, to a certain extent, if that's some of the variability that we've seen with COVID, right? Why one person carries COVID, doesn't even know they have it. Another person gets COVID in there in the hospital and like fighting for their lives. So, you know, I think there is, there are these, and to me, the exciting part I'm with you on that is that the next frontier in medicine is understanding the connections between these things. We've been so long taught there's this disease and that disease and this condition and that condition and all the protocols for all the diseases and the conditions, but they kind of wind their way back to some of these fundamental processes that we have to understand in the body. And I think that will be the future of medicine, you know, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, borrowing a name from an, an expression from, um, from physics, you know, it's almost like the string theory of chronic disease. Yeah, you know, totally. Which, which explains every, I mean, I, I kind of hate as a scientist to generalize like that, but to do the writing my book and doing the research on this and following it since then, it seems to be the case, you know, there's, there's a few simple mechanisms. The details are extremely complicated, you know, which microbes right. and which metabolites, right. thousands of metabolites. But the answer that we have right now, even before all these scientific questions are answered, we know that lifestyle, you know, particular diet, but also my, states of mind, um, regular exercise, I mean, they all affect that, that, that system. And it goes back, you know, there's lots of statistics, earlier statistics, epidemiology. There's about six factors that determine if you measure those six factors, when you're 50, it determines how many uh, disease-free lives of longevity you have. And mm -hmm. these are all the factors that we do know influence, the, you know, the microbiome and this chronic immune activation. Wow. So it's a um, very interesting area that right now we have the answers in terms of, you know, the simple, the lifestyle stuff. So it's just the motivation of the patient to actually believe that and change their behavior. It's not easy. Um, and on the other side, we have the, probably the most exciting science ever. So certainly what, what I remember um, going on, which will take, you know, 30 decades before we unravel. And then there's another group, uh, you know, of, of, of interest. It's, it's companies, it's the startup companies and it's the pharmaceutical industry. Obviously, they don't want to deal with the diet. They want to identify in the diet what are the molecules that provide these benefits. So, right, right. And um, they will come up with things that, you know, may be partially successful. Um, but I'm a firm believer that if you stick with the right diet and the right lifestyle, that's a lot more. Effective. That's the key. What are the, so before I let you go, what are the six factors? I know everybody out there are like, wait, what are those six factors? And how do I make sure I'm, I'm following all of those or tracking those if, you know, to make sure that I have longer phases of, of healthy, healthy living overall, what are they? I'm assuming diets one, right? Yeah, we're, we're talking about the six factors that influence the microbiome that, that in turn tamper or keep the immune system healthy. So diet is one. What are the others? Um, all the mind or brain-based factors, which are the emotions and which are the, you know, the, the chronic stress. Um, then regular um, moderate exercise. It's not mm -hmm. the extreme exercise, the ultra marathon, because that has been shown to actually have a, a detrimental effect on both the gut and the mind, because you know, the body perceives this as a major stressor. So it reacts just like a psychological stressor. Um, sleep is, is, is another mm. important one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. So I don't know, we have five. Maybe Let's five. see, diet, 
exercise, sleep, mindfulness, and emotional regulation, stress management. Uh, what else? Would, anything else you would add to that list? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm blocking on the fifth factor. Well, so in, in many of these, something obvious, you know, not not smoking. I mean, smoking mm. drives up the risk of or, right. or decreases your 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 longevity, but um, which still a lot of people do. I mean, not not where we live, you know, on the west side of Los Angeles, you almost yeah. hardly see anybody, but a large portion of the population, certainly worldwide, you know, smoking is still a big factor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating and I want to thank you for your time today. I, I love hearing about the science and the research behind a lot of what we're seeing clinically and in the exam rooms for sure. And I think for everybody out there listening today, if you were ever hesitant about the gut-brain connection or the gut-immune connection, I encourage you to pick up Dr. Meyer's book. The books are The Mind-Gut Connection, The Gut-Immune Connection. I think they're available everywhere the books are sold. Dr. Meyer, if anyone wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So the simplest way is just to go to my website, emmeronmeyer.com. Uh, it will ask you if you're interested in receiving our newsletter um, and other mailings. Um, Gut Health Insights is a weekly mailing that where I write an article about something. Um, and then, you know, when when all the social media, so you, you'll find that the, the addresses on on, uh, um, on the on the website. So I would say, yeah, the easiest way, just go to the website, um, sign up for the newsletter, and then go from there. Perfect. Well, thank you again for your time. And for everyone watching and listening today, thank you for staying tuned to another episode of Superwoman Wellness, where you know that we are determined to get you back to your healthiest self. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review it and share it with your friends. I will see you guys next time. <music>